The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the tenth of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year-old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. This is the word of God for the people of God. It's a weird text to preach, friends. And it's strange to me that this text should follow in the lectionary after last week's text. For so much happens between chapters 3 and 11. Last week, we heard God call to Moses from a bush, burning but not consumed, and tell him to return to the land from which he fled. Moses, a wanted man, is to come before Ramses II, who was Pharaoh at the time, and tell him to, as we all know from the song, let his people go. Sometime later, Moses chickens out, so God allows his brother Aaron to go with him before Pharaoh. Together, they're supposed to tell Pharaoh that a God called I Am has sent them to secure the freedom of the slaves whose labor forms the backbone of the Egyptian economy. Pharaoh, in response, counters that there are many gods, and for good reason. It's critical in interpreting this text that we not forget that pharaohs believed themselves to be divine. So, to Ramses II's mind, a mere mortal comes to him, a god, and tells him that another god is challenging his authority. But not one of the gods he knows from from his pantheon, not one of the gods with whom he is familiar, rather some new god on the scene. Pharaoh responds to Moses and Aaron's demand with, Who is the Lord that I should heed his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Thus the stage is set for a long battle between an unseen god and a man who believes himself divine. In theological terms, this is called a theomachy, a cosmic battle of the gods. In response to Moses' demand, Pharaoh doubles down on the Israelites. 
He requires them not only to continue to make bricks at their punishing daily quota, but also now to gather the straw necessary to bind the bricks. Some of the enslaved people blamed Moses, prompting him to ask of I am, why did you ever send me? God reassured Moses that in time, Pharaoh himself will send the Israelites out of Egypt and God will redeem the Israelites with a strong hand and an outstretched arm so that they too will come to know I am. God tells Moses to go before Ramses II in the morning when he is by the riverbank and demand that he free the Israelites. So Moses and Aaron go, and as expected, because we know this story, or at least we think so, we are not surprised when Pharaoh does not relent. Moses instructed Aaron then to stretch out his staff and turn the water of the Nile into blood. This is the first plague. The river, the streams, even the water collected in pots outside of households, it all turns to blood. All the fish die and the river stinks. But Pharaoh replied that Egypt's magicians had done what I am supposedly had simply done and turned and walked away into his house. So God sends Moses and Aaron back again, promising a plague of frogs if Pharaoh does not relent. He does not. He refuses to free the slaves, and so again Aaron outstretched his arm over the river and frogs invaded every space, such that there were even frogs in Ramses II's bedroom. Again, he said, my magicians can do this. So he sees no reason to free the Israelites. Again and again, God sends Moses and Aaron to secure the people's freedom. And each time Pharaoh refuses, even after sometimes initially saying he would let his people go. The third and fourth plagues follow in chapter 8. Gnats and then flies. The magicians could not do those things, the text tells us. The fifth, sixth, and seventh plagues follow in chapter 9. All the Egyptian livestock dies and boils break out on persons and animals alike. Hail strikes down crops and workers and animals in the fields. Still, Pharaoh refuses to let Moses' people go. In chapter 10, locusts devour all of the crops. Pharaoh now asks for I am's forgiveness because his people are on the brink of starvation. But he does not let the Israelites go. Then darkness covers the land for three whole days. And Pharaoh relents, I will let your people go. But then he changes his mind. Then in chapter 11, God hands down the final and most terrible plague. All the firstborn males of Egyptians shall die, both persons and cattle. After all of this death and destruction, after all of the pain and loss endured by Egyptians and Israelites alike for Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, God says, the worst is yet to come. The text reads, about midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill and all firstborn of the livestock. There will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as has never been or will ever be again. But not a dog shall growl at any of the Israelites, not at people, not at animals, 
so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And on this cheery note, we enter today's text. After the pronouncement is handed down, but before the deed occurs, right smack in the middle of the rising action, the narrator pauses to tell us about a ritual. Just before their liberation, God tells the people, stop, celebrate. Make no mistake, the Passover meal is a wartime liturgy. In the Theomachy, this cosmic battle between I am and Ramses II, the Israelites are to celebrate the victory even when all they see is destruction. The Lord instructs them, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from sheep or goats. Michael J. Chan writes, Designed for adverse conditions, these verses constitute a liturgical response to the demonic, trauma-inducing reign of Pharaoh. Exodus 12, 1 through 14, represents one element of a lengthy, iterative process of teaching Israel to live, no longer as citizens within a system of domination, but rather as recipients of the kind of fierce benevolence of Yahweh. The first way this happens is by a resetting of time. God literally restarts the clock. The first way is by God telling Moses, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. That is to say, the Egyptian calendar is now meaningless to you. You are on God's time. And it is from this new calendar that God instructs the people, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall, shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take... They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains in the morning you shall burn. Much like the priests of Israel will be instructed in Leviticus on how to worship via preparing sacrifices. Here the people are instructed to prepare the lamb as God has taught them. There is no priestly intermediary. It is each one with each one's family before the holy. They are to slaughter the animal in community and put some of the blood on their doorposts. Then they shall eat the roasted lamb with flat bread and bitter herbs. It must all be eaten or yet burnt the next morning. But it's not enough for God to tell the people how to slaughter and cook the lamb or even how to dispose of it. God goes on to tell them precisely how they must eat it. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Remember, this is Pharaoh too. 
I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you where you live. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. When the Israelites take part in this feast, God says, they are to do so as if ready to run. They are to eat dressed and shod, standing, defended with their staves, and quickly. They are to be ready to flee. This is a fully embodied experience, this Passover meal. They are required to participate. They're not lounging at their tables. They're standing, dressed, defended, consuming, ready to go. Michael J. Chan writes, Passover is meant to be practiced with a sense of haste and disquietude, with the awareness that liberation may arrive like a thief in the night. The participant's entire body is drawn into the experience. But the ritual is more than surrender to the change that is about to come. In writing this chapter just before the climax of the Exodus story, the liturgist frames the Passover event as a paradigm for God's confrontation with tyranny. Walter Brueggemann tells us that the Passover story has God's people telling and retelling of God's successful confrontation with a particular tyranny at a particular time. For in all particular times, we will always come face to face with novel forms of tyranny. The Exodus event itself is the centering narrative of the Hebrew Bible, Pixley writes. It is the touchstone event in the life of Israel. This liberation will make them a people, born of Abraham, enslaved of Egypt, finally ready to become free. I am is on the precipice of delivering God's people. And the writer of this section of Exodus calls the reader's attention to this pause. It is the space between the moment they are in and the freedom that is to come. The writer theologian knows that readers in the future must be reminded that this God, the God who shall in the next chapter deliver the Israelites from Pharaoh's grip, the same God who will save with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, this God is asking the people to believe in liberation before it comes to pass. Remember, our writer urges, remember. Remember when you are bound in tyranny, Remember when you are suffering. Remember when it seems like there is no path to freedom. Remember when it feels like all is lost. Then you remember this Passover. You remember the God who freed you from Egypt. And you celebrate the God who is mighty to save. Gerhard von Rod writes, To call Yahweh deliverer is to make a confession. It is to trust that the character of I am is to deliver God's people from tyranny wherever it is manifest. It is to listen for the cry of those who are oppressed. It is to call God's people to do their part to work for liberation. Whenever and wherever God's people cry out under the burden of oppression, we are to work to secure their freedom. Let us feast, yes, sure of the character of the one who hates persecution and subjugation. 
but let us also be ready. Loins girded, feet shod, staff in hand, eating hastily, ready to confront tyranny wherever we may find it, ready to break chains that bind people to harmful systems and persons, ready to move when the voice of God calls. My friends, let us be ready. Amen.